0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. What was going on in Colossus was there were, uh, it was kind of like a almost like a, a central point where a lot of people were coming from different backgrounds and so there was a lot of different religious teachings that were influencing the Colossians, the population of Colossians. Um, the purpose for Paul's epistle, I took this out of Easton's Bible Dictionary, says it was to counteract false teaching. A large part of it is directed against certain speculatists who attempted to combine the doctrines of Oriental mysticism and asceticism with Christianity, thereby promising the disciples the enjoyment of a higher spiritual life and a deeper insight. Into the world of the spirits. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. What's a speculist? (laughs) I don't know. I've never used that term before. So I looked it up, and it's someone who speculates, (laughs) someone who forms theories, is what it means. And uh, and then mysticism, maybe you're already familiar with it, but this is a definition. It says, a belief in the existence of realities beyond perceptual or intellectual apprehension that are central to being and directly accessible by subjective experience. That's a key thing, subjective experience. And then another definition says it's vague, groundless speculation. And then finally, uh, oh, and by the way, the worship of angels was included in this mysticism. There was rabbinical teachings. Actually, you know, Madonna is a, you know, she worships, what, Kabbalah or whatever. That's her religion of choice, you know. Um, and that's an ancient rabbin- rabbinical Hebrew, you know, type of teaching, but it, it gets really into the mystical stuff and worshiping of angels and a lot of weird stuff that uh, comes from that. Anyways, that was part of mysticism. And uh, and then asceticism. What is asceticism? It's the doctrine that uh, the ascetic, ascetic life or extreme self-denial and austerity, in other words, you deny yourself of all these bodily pleasures or whatever, it, that if you do this, it releases the soul from bondage to the body and permits union with the divine. So if you can imagine, you're a Gentile living there in Colossus, and you know maybe you're hungry for spiritual truth, and you've got all these different, Voices, all these different quote truths being told you, and some people just say, you know what? I like a little bit of that, and I like a little. It's like a smorgasbord, you know. I'll take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and I'll just come up with my own theory. I'll speculate, and that's really what was going on. And so, Paul's letter is to address that problem. Now, it wasn't necessarily a problem in the church, as we'll see. This church was actually a very healthy church, but all around them, they had that pressure. To succumb to that type of teachings, and there was a lot of false teachings. You know, I look at that as far as our culture; it, it doesn't seem like it's too different from where we're at today, right? In fact, speaking of Madonna, now I'm not, this isn't a focus on Madonna evening, but or morning. But I was uh, reading in the news, and this always catches my eye when someone who's like a famous celebrity or a, a, a musician or something, when when it talks about the fact that they gave their heart to the Lord, it's amazing to me how many rock stars have come to faith in Christ Jesus over the years. Something you just you don't hear about. It's a, it blows me away when I read about it. Um, well, anyways, I was uh, this caught my eye. It said something about Madonna's backup singers got religion. And I thought, oh, there's another one who gave her heart to the Lord. Very fascinating. So I dug in and I started reading it. And I'm thinking, okay, well, we'll you know, get to the point, get to the point. Finally, towards the end of this article, it says that she says, um, I, t- I like the truths in all religions. And, and so I'm like, okay, well, there we go. She's got religion, all right. It's just, you know there's many paths but you, you know it's all to one destination and stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of that thinking going on in our culture today. And so, this letter I think is applicable to where we are at today. So, let's get into the letter. Colossians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossus, Grace to you, And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's Paul's typical greeting grace and peace. Um, Verse 3. Now, here Paul commends, in verses 3 through 8, Paul commends the church for their reputation. Like I said earlier, they were a healthy church. It's interesting, though, Paul didn't start this church. Um, This is a church, Paul hadn't even met these believers. He just had a report from them from Epaphras. You might say, okay, well, who was Epaphras? When we get to chapter 4, we find out that he was one of them. In other words, he was a citizen of Colossus. This was his hometown. And more than likely, he's the one that started this church. And from Paul's greeting in Philemon, which is another prison epistle, we find out that uh, um, uh, Epaphras was a fellow prisoner with Paul in Rome. And so that's probably where Paul met him. And uh, so here Epaphras is giving a report of the church And here's Paul's response here, verse 3. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras here gave a good report of the church at Colossus. It's you know, he didn't say, Well, there's all these problems with the church, there's this, you know, there's these people that are doing that. No, it's just it was a good report that Epaphras gave. Uh, and what did Paul do with that? Verse three, he rejoiced and he prayed for them. Now, you know, a lot of times at the end of a service I'll say, if you have any prayer needs, come up and pray. And um, I had the opportunity to pray with Paul Johnson. You know, he's was here last week. He's getting ready to go back to uh, Tennessee. And so I wanted to say goodbye to them before they left. And so we got together. Actually, Dave was with me. We, we met him at the Gift of Life Transplant House and spent some time and then just prayed with them. And a lot of times I'll get prayer requests and people come up. It's usually something's, you know, there's a trial in their life, there's a sickness, or something's going on, can you pray for me, you know, I lost my job, can you pray? And, and of course we are to bring those requests to the Lord, we're to bring everything to the Lord in prayer. But it's interesting, we normally pray for people when they're doing bad, not good. Isn't that interesting? You know, and yet here Paul received a good report and he prays for them. What caused Paul to rejoice and pray for the saints at Colossus? They were a healthy church. You look at verses 4 and 5. These were believers who had a reputation for their faith in Christ Jesus. Paul heard about their faith. These guys, they took steps of faith as a church, as individuals. They walked by faith. Their actions were based on faith. That means, you know, okay, what does that mean? Well, that means that they trusted God in everything that they did, even when there wasn't laid out plainly before them. In other words you know i really feel you know i really believe that this is what lord's leading me to do and so i'm going to take the step of faith that's how they live their lives with their faith in christ you know a lot of times we might say that we trust in christ and you know you have to wonder sometimes does does that mean you just trust in christ for your salvation or do you really trust in christ for every aspect of your life for everything that you do You know, it's so important for you and I to walk by faith. In fact, in Hebrews 11, it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. God wants us to take steps of faith. So these Colossians, they had a mature faith in Christ, and they also had a love for all the saints. Probably even the ones that irritated them. You know, the Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And so these Colossians, they loved one another. They, they, they had brotherly love. You know, and you might think, well, you know, but some people are just unlovable by their actions. Some people just really irritate me. Um, you know, if we were to be honest with ourselves we were all unlovable to God by our actions. You know, we were all unlovable at some point in our lives. And he extended his grace to us when we were unlovable. He didn't wait for you to clean up your act before he said, okay, now now I'll accept you into my family. He took you in the muck and the mire, and he says, I love you, and I died for you. And he'll take you just like that, you know. And yet, then we come into the family of God, and then all of a sudden now we start, like, Getting kind of, you know, this guy really irritates me. Or, man, she just does stuff. She doesn't deserve my love. Well, you know what? None of us deserve God's love. And so God wants you and I to extend that same grace to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. The Colossians got it. And they did that. They extended grace to one another. So they were known not only for their faith in Christ, but for their love for one another. The church at Colossus had a reputation as being true disciples of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus himself said in John thirteen thirty five, By this all will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what motivated their faith? What motivated their love? This is what it was. Their hope of eternal life. You see, how they lived their lives, the choices that they made, how they treated each other, it was based on an eternal perspective. That person that irritates you, do you realize if they're a brother or a sister in the Lord that you're going to spend eternity with them? Ah, hopefully on the far side of heaven, they'll be over there and they'll be over We're going to be together at the throne worshiping the Lord. You know, sometimes I—you know there's people that have irritated me. None of you, of course. There's other people in other places that have irritated me. <laughs> you guys are saints, man. Um, and, uh, you know, I've had to remind myself, you know, I'm going to be spending eternity with this person. I better get my heart right towards them now because I'm going to be in heaven with them. i got a feeling, though, when we're in heaven, we're not going to be thinking about those, well, he did that to me, and here he is. You know, I, I think it's just going to be, we're going to be just awestruck worshiping the Lord Jesus. It just That's going to be our focus throughout eternity. You know, I would love to see us as a church take more steps of faith, including myself, but as a church body and as, in, as individuals. And, and I know some of you do that. Some of you say, you know, I believe the Lord's leading me in this direction, and I'm going to go do this. And, and I, it encourages me when I hear that. Likewise, I'd love to see each of us living in light of eternity, realizing that Jesus could come back any time, because that really does affect how you live your life and how the choices that you make. But you know what? Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says all three of these abide, faith, hope, and love. But you know which one's the greatest? Love. Love's the most important one. And so because the believers at Colossus were living their lives marked by their faith in Jesus, and because they were excelling in their love towards others, and because they expected that Jesus could return at any moment, and they lived their lives accordingly, you know what? They produced fruit. It just happens. You just produce fruit when you're doing that. Verse 6. And that's why Peter in, first, in his second epistle, chapter 1, says this, "...but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to your virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance." To perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be unbarren, excuse me, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You do these things, you know, you, you walk by faith in the Lord, you love one another, uh, and you and you live in the light of eternity, you're gonna produce fruit in your life. You don't even have to strive, you're gonna produce fruit. So. Verse 9. For this reason, that's a report that Paul received. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it... Do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. What was Paul's chief concern for the Colossians? that they be filled with knowledge and wisdom. Those words, he's going to refer to it, knowledge and wisdom, he's going to come back to that several times in his epistle. That's the theme of his epistle, the truth, learning the truth. And, And he wanted them to be filled with knowledge and wisdom. That word knowledge is the Greek word epignosis, and it means full discernment, precise, and correct knowledge. He wanted them to have a good theology, a right theology, a biblical theology. Paul's concern for them was that they would succumb to the false teaching that was pervasive in Colossus at the time. And so he prays that they be filled with knowledge, uh, with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. You know... For you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, it's really our responsibility to know God and to know what he requires of us. I mean, that's our job is to find out what pleases God and and what he wants us to do and to get to know him. And as Paul prays here, he prays that they would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You know what his concern was, was that their knowledge wouldn't be a head knowledge. I, I, I know lots of Christians that, that can quote scriptures, they've got their theology down pat and stuff, and it's, it's a head knowledge, it's not a heart knowledge. And Paul wanted them to not just have a head knowledge, he wanted them to have the truth, and to understand the truth, but that they would take that truth and it would affect how they live. And that's important for you and I here this morning. You know, whatever you hear today, if the Lord's speaking to your heart, or you see it in Scripture, or Something you never, whatever, if the Spirit speaks to you this morning, it's not just for you to go, hmm, that was interesting. That was a good teaching. Well, maybe you don't say that, but, you know, whatever. It, it's, it's not for you to just go, well, that was a good theological exercise. I feel like I know more now. It's so that you would take that knowledge and you'd say, you know what? My life doesn't add up in that area, so, you know, I think I need to change. I think I need to do what... Lord speaking to my heart to do and were to walk and obey it and, and, and to not only be hearers of the word but to be doers of the word and so Paul was praying that they would increase in their knowledge of God knowing God and knowing his will it's not a static thing you'll never reach a point in your life where there's all there you know you know everything there is to know about God you'll never reach that point you'll never reach that point where you're going to know his will perfectly in every situation. You know that? You, you may understand God's will in a lot of areas, but you're never going to reach that point where you perfectly know in every situation on this side of eternity. You know why? Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that right now in life, we just see in a mirror dimly. See, see that's the whole reason why we're walking by faith. Because we don't have it all figured out, we don't have all the answers, and so and so we go to the Lord, we pray, we get into the Word, we 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 listen to the Holy Spirit, and sometimes we just say, you know what? I think this is what the Lord's telling me to do, and you take that step of faith because we don't have it all figured out, and you never will, on this side of life. That's where walking by faith and not by sight comes into. Secondly, as you abide in the Lord and as you obey His Word, you know what's going to happen you're going to know Him more. You're going to increase in your knowledge of Him because our relationship with God, it's not static, it's dynamic. It's growing, it's changing. Hopefully it is for all of you, it's changing. You're understanding the Lord more and you're you're getting to know His heart better as you obey His Word, as you dig in and as you follow Him. He's going to reveal more and more to you. You're going to grow in that knowledge. And then finally, Paul prays in verse 11 that they be strengthened with all might according to his glorious pa- power for all patience and long suffering with joy. How can you and I patiently wait for things with joy? I think that's coming into the hope of eternal life by remembering that this life and all its problems, man, they're temporary. They're temporary. We have eternal life waiting for us you understand that, that we have eternal life waiting for us? You, you just think about it. You, everybody's kind of like this morning. It's, it's hot, I know, but you're like, we have eternal life. It's funny. There's a. Uh, this isn't all that funny, but um, I, I used to work for a large corporation. I can't name its name, but they live here. They're here in Rochester. Um, and uh, uh, I was a, a document writer. I wrote instructions for them. And internally to this company, those instructions would get reviewed uh, by someone in New York, and uh, they would, uh, ch- what, what they were supposed to do is they were supposed to take my instructions about how to upgrade equipment, and do stuff, and they're supposed to run through the instructions and say, hey, yeah, it works. You know, you've, you've documented it correctly as far as the procedure goes. But this guy, This guy, man, I tell you, he was my thorn in the flesh for many years. He kept me humble in a lot of ways because he was definitely a tester of my patience. Um, Because he would become so critique about the wording and the exact phrase. And And then he wanted you to say things just his way. And he couldn't take no for an answer. He was just one of these guys that was just pig-headed, and he had a reputation for being pig-headed. Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I got laid off from this company about a year ago, and I'm still working as a contractor now to them. And uh, I still have some friends in my old department, and I get this this one friend of mine. He lives out in New York also. Every, almost, it seemed like for a while there, every day he would send me this instant message, just pop up on my computer and scream. And he goes, hey, guess what? Did you know that so-and-so is getting laid off? Because they had another layoff, you know, and it's this, this person, and I'm like, yeah, of course, I know that. He goes, I know. I just love saying it every time, <laughs> so he just writes it. <laughs> so, you know, but uh, I know it's a bad example, but I'm, it's, it's, there's an application here. <laughs> we have eternal life waiting. We need to remind ourselves that we have eternal life waiting for us. So that should give us joy. That was a long way to go a long way around it. <laughs> and then he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light verse 12. You know in Proverbs 4:18 it says, "But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines even brighter until the perfect day. Right now on this side of life we see things in a mirror dimly. You know, my friend Paul, you know, the doctors pretty much said that there's nothing more that they can do for him. He's just basically going back to Tennessee, and, you know, they'll probably try to treat the symptoms. If he can get his, uh, uh, there's a certain rub- rubabilin or whatever, they can get his numbers down. He might be able to get chemo, but it doesn't look too promising because of where he's at. And And, you know, you have to wonder, why does God allow that to happen? You know, why does one individual... You know, does he decide to take one individual earlier in his life and another person wants to live full, you know, full-term, mature, till he's a senior citizen, and then, he, and then he goes peacefully in his sleep or whatever. Why does God do that? You know, the answer is, we don't know the answer on this side of, the, of eternity. It, we, we see in a mirror dimly. But when you and I stand before the throne of God with the saints in light, in light, I mean, we're going to see everything, we're going to understand. We're going to know at that point. And so to counteract the false teaching that was pervasive in Colossus, Paul is going to use the rest of this letter now to equip the Colossians with the truth. And here in verses 13 and 14, he starts with a truth about what God has done for you and I. Verse 13, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of of sins. There is an in, invisible spiritual realm around us. There's a spiritual force of darkness. Satan is the prince of this force. However, non believers are under the power and influence of this spiritual force, this force of darkness. But when someone is born again, they are delivered and they're conveyed or transferred from that kingdom of darkness into God's uh, kingdom. You know, we may still be tempted by the devil, but we're no longer under his power. That's why Jesus himself said in John 8, 36, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And if he sets you free, you're free. A lot of people have different ideas about God. You know, many times people create God in their own image, in their own mind, of what they feel like God is like. You know, sometimes... Someone who feels conviction about their sinful life, but they're not willing to surrender their lives to God—they have an image of God. My God is a loving God that would never send anyone to hell. Why? Because they don't want to confront their sin. They don't want to admit that they're accountable because of their lives, their life, what they're doing, and stuff. A lot of people do that, and they'll they'll tell you, "Well, my God's this," and then and it, you know, basically, it's like it sounds an awful lot like you. Like you're making God in your image because that's what you want to hear. Well, many Colossians had their theories about God. And so what Paul wanted to do is he wanted to equip the believers in Coloss with the truth about who God is. And he starts out very interesting. He goes, it's like basically he's saying, you want to know about, uh, you want to know about God? You need look no further than Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. There's a story, there's a a passage in Scripture in the Gospels. The disciples are around Jesus, and they're hanging out, and Philip, one of the disciples, says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. That'll be sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet have you not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. You want to to know God? Then know Jesus. You want a relationship with God? Well, you need a relationship with Jesus you want to understand i mean you know you look at some of the caricatures that people have of god you know this old man in a beard and stuff you want to know who jesus is look at Je- or you want to know who god is look at jesus not only is jesus the image of the invisible god verse 15 but he is the firstborn over all creation that's interesting because some of the cults will say ha, ha there we go Jesus was born. In fact, he was the firstborn, which means he was created, and they'll deny the deity of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. Paul uses the word protokos, and it doesn't speak of their sequence of origin, in other words, their chronological history, but of their superiority of rank. You might say, well, that's easy for you to say. (laughs) It wasn't. but um, You know, throughout the Bible... The Bible points to different figures and calls them the firstborn. And when you look in the Bible and you start reading about the history, you're like, hey, wait a minute, they're, they're not the firstborn. And the reason why is because the Bible's not talking about them in their chronological being firstborn, but in their superiority and rank. Example, Exodus 4.22. The Bible says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now, if you know who Israel is, that's Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And so God here is saying, Israel or Jacob is my firstborn. But was he the firstborn chronologically? No. He had an older brother named Esau. But what the passage is saying is that Jacob was chosen above Esau by God. And that's a whole other, we won't get into that, it's a whole other Bible study jeremiah thirty one joseph's son Ephraim remember he had two sons when he was uh, he went into slavery in egypt and and uh, uh, the prince of on or on whatever gave him his daughter as a, as a as a wife and and so Joseph married this Egyptian he had a couple sons and his sons were Ephraim and Manasseh and in jeremiah thirty one Ephraim is called god's firstborn, but when you look at the history, Manasseh was born before Ephraim. Again, it's not chronologically firstborn, but superior in rank. Speaking of King David in Psalm 89, 27, says, Also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And yet we know chronologically, David was the, uh, was the younger brother, uh, Jesse, he was one of the youngest sons. In fact, he might have been the youngest son of Jesse. And, He was second king. He wasn't even the first king. He was the second king after Saul. But you see, David was chosen above all his brothers and above all other kings. So Jesus is superior in rank to all creation. So if somebody ever comes up to you and says, you know, look at this passage of scripture. It shows that Jesus was born. He was created. You can say, "Uh uh-uh. It means he was superior in rank, if you remember that. Um, But, you know, if you go down a little further, Jesus, the Bible, Paul can't be speaking that Jesus was created first. Why? Because Jesus created all things. Verse 16, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus was the creator. You know, you think of Jesus who told the sea, the stormy sea, to be still. That same voice spoke creation into existence. That same voice. Jesus is the one who spoke creation into being. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And so not only are things created through him or by him, but all things were created for him. All things were created for him. That means that all creation is answerable to Jesus. All creation is subject to him. That is the question. I remember in the in years ago when I was a kid, there'd be the questions, you know, like What's the question of life? You know, what's the answer to life? What's the answer to the universe? And well, I tell you what, there is one question that's going to be detrimental. That's that's the key to eternal life. And that's who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus? Well, he was a good teacher. That's not the answer. Wrong answer. Who is Jesus? (laughs) He was a prophet. Uh, Wrong answer. Who is Jesus? He's my Lord and Savior. All right. That's gonna be the key. Who is Jesus? So all things were created by him and all things were created for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things. That word before is the word for, and it means in front of, before, and superior to. And so Jesus is superior to all creation. You know, here's another thing that some people kind of get caught up with. They kind of they kind of look at the devil and they look at Jesus. And it's almost like the yin and the yang, right? Okay, Jesus is the light, and he's the good, and he's the good side, you know. And and the devil's the dark, and he's the dark side. And and they put Jesus, or they put the devil on the same level with Jesus, and that's false teaching. Because the devil was an angel that Jesus created. He's not the brother, the evil dark brother, or anything. Like that. He was an angel that was created by Jesus who rebelled and was cast out of heaven, taking a third of the angels with him in his rebellion. Those angels, now they're demons. You know, the Bible talks about myriads and myriads of angels, and sometimes people can get overwhelmed with the demonic forces. Well, you know what? Only a third rebelled. That means that there's two-thirds of angels that are faithful to the Lord God, that are his messengers and servants for you and I here on earth. So Jesus is superior to all creation, including the devil. But that word before can also refer to chronologically, to chronological time. So if Jesus is before all things, time is a thing. That means that Jesus is before time also. He's eternal. Verse 17 continued, "...and in Him all things consist." I was, went to school for electronics, and I became an electronic technician when I got out of the military. I was working on electronics in the military, too, and worked on electronics at my company that I used to work for that I can't name. Um, but <laughs> part of having to learn electronics is having to learn electronic theory. And there's a law called Coulomb's Law. And that law, and you guys probably learned it in school even if you didn't take electronics, opposite charges attract... And like charges repel, and you guys know that, right? You take, in school, you probably had the experiment, or maybe at home, you took two magnets, you know, and you try to line the, the, the positive sides together, and you try to push them together. And uh, I don't think there's anyone on the planet that's strong enough to push those two forces together. Those two, you know, the positive, the positive, you just can't do it. You take the, you flip it around so the negative and the positive, and then you, you know, then you got to try to prove how strong you are to pull it apart. Um, depending on how strong the magnet is, you can you can pull it apart interesting law you know the nucleus of an atom and i'm going to start going over my head here in atomic theory but the nucleus of an atom is made up of positively charged protons and neutrons and the fancy, the fascinating thing about that is that coulomb's law doesn't occur or doesn't doesn't apply when it comes to the atom because you here you have this this nucleus of the atom and you have all these positive uh, charged protons and they're stuck together And Coulomb's Law says that positives repel. So how does that stay together? How does that atom stay together? You know what? Nobody really knows. There are theories. Dark matter, you know, cosmic glue, whatever you want to call it. I don't know. Um, What do you think would happen when suddenly all those protons and all the nucleuses of all the atoms suddenly repelled one another? I can tell you what would happen. It would be very, very loud, and it would be very, very hot. You go, man, you're not a physicist. How do you know that? Because Second Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So what's holding all that stuff together? Well, all things are held by Jesus. And so there is coming a time when finally the word of the Lord is going to say, that's it, we're done. And everything is going to come apart. And the elements and everything is going to be destroyed with great noise. I don't think anyone will be around to hear it. <laughs> but uh, great noise and fervent heat. You know, it's interesting in Isaiah 65, 17, God's speaking about creating a new heavens and a new earth. He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. When this happens, and when when Jesus, you know, and everything just melts away, and we're not going to go, Oh, man, I wonder what happened to my house. You know, (laughs) I'll tell you what happened to your house. But basically, all those things that you and I focus on in this life, it's not going to be remembered anymore. It's not gonna. It's not even gonna come to mind. So think about those things that you are so focused on right now, the things that have got you. They're they're just so heavy on your heart, or you know that's it's the the priority of your life. When you enter into heaven, that stuff is just. It's not. You're not even gonna be able to remember what it was that you were so concerned about here. And then finally, Colossians one. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now, wait a minute. Didn't Elijah raise up the dead widow, or excuse me, the widow of Zarephath's son who had died? Remember that in the Old Testament? And didn't Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? So if they were, how can Jesus be the firstborn of the dead if those two people and probably others, you know, rose from the dead before that? How how could that be? You see, the thing is, those people, Lazarus and the widow's son, they're not alive today. They died again. In fact, it's kind of funny. You know, Jesus speaks, and he, he you know, he, Lazarus has been in the tomb for three days, and he stinketh, and, 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 uh, and Jesus basically stands before the tomb and he calls out Lazarus. Of course, he had to call out Lazarus because if he just said arise, then everybody in the graveyard would have came up. So, he, so he singles out Lazarus. Okay, Lazarus, arise. And, and Lazarus rises from the dead. And it's just it's a miracle, and all the people are just overwhelmed by it. You know what the religious leaders try to do? Let's kill Lazarus. <laughs> let's let's get rid of him. You know, it's like wait a minute, Jesus could just rise him again. You know, so kind of funny how people think sometimes. Well, these guys, Lazarus and the widow's son, they are not alive today. They eventually died again. But Jesus is the first one to be raised up to never die again. Jesus is alive. So, summing up all of this, Jesus has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom. He's the express image of God, the Father. He is superior in rank to all creation. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. He's the head of the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. And then he says that in all things He may have preeminence. Preeminence, that means to be first in rank and influence and to hold first place. Now, I, I don't know if you learned anything today. You, maybe you've heard all these things that I've shared before, or you would know this, maybe you even taught a Bible study. You know all this stuff, and I've just kind of like re- reminded you maybe of stuff. But let me ask you this. You know, we're to take what we know and we're to apply it to our lives. So, so how do we apply this to our lives today? Well, let me ask you this, and you can, it's rhetorical. You, I want you to just think about it. Is Jesus first in rank in your heart this morning? Is he first an influence in your heart? Does he hold first place above everything else in your heart? That's the application this morning. And that's what Paul was trying to get across to the Colossians. So this morning, does Jesus hold first place in your and my heart? And when you start thinking, or you start meditating on this and realize, you know, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And that almost sounds cliche, but it's true. It is all about Jesus. Speaking of being all about Jesus, this morning is the first Sunday of the, of the month, and we celebrate communion on the first Sunday of the month here at Calvary Chapel. And so we're going to go ahead and, and uh, do that this morning as well. And again, the focus is on Jesus. The focus is on His sacrifice for your and my sin, what He did on the cross to remember, we're to remember what He did. And we're to remember it in a way that, you know, it, pretty soon He's coming back. And this is just kind of like a, a reminder of the, of the wedding supper of the Lamb and, and the, the, the fellowship that we'll have together. But there's time coming soon when we're going to be eating in His presence with Him.